Turn with me, if you would, to the 11th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 11. And we're going to look at a passage that deals somewhat with the expansion of the early church. And uh, if you would, follow me along in your Bible as I read from this one here in the pulpit. And I think you'll find it helpful if you keep your Bible open as we work our way expositionally through the passage uh, tonight. But hear the word of God as it comes to us from the 11th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, beginning at verse 19, I'm going to read through verse 26. Hear the word of the true and living God. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we bow in your presence tonight, conscious, O Lord, that as we come to your word, that we will not simply be interacting with the thoughts and the notions of a preacher, but that we will be having direct dealings with you in the ministry of this your word and so father i would plead with you that you would send your holy spirit upon people and preacher alike enable us father to grasp the meaning of your word and then grant O oh god that our understanding thereof will be so applied to us by the holy spirit with authority and power that we would find our own lives conformed to the norm of this, your word, we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, I titled uh, tonight's sermon and next Lord's Day evening sermon what I call our Christian manifesto. A manifesto is the expression of an objective, that we have a goal or, or an objective objective as Christians. And this 
passage speaks of that with a particular exhortation which we're going to come to in just a few moments. But Holy Scripture teaches us that the privileges and the obligations of the Christian faith are tremendous and numerous. And it is for this reason that the whole of the Word of God has been entrusted to us for our blessing and for our obedience as God's people. And our Lord Himself reminds us of this when quoting from the book of Deuteronomy in His rebuke of the evil one, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Indeed, it is on account of that reality that the blessed man or the blessed woman described for us in the first psalm is so depicted as one who delights in the law of the Lord and in whose law meditates both day and night. And the most advanced Christian sitting here among us this evening has not advanced beyond the necessity of continual daily reflection upon the truth of God as revealed in the Word of God, the Scriptures. And because our privileges and our obligations are tremendous and numerous, and because it is the whole of Scripture... Toda Scriptura, which informs and norms for us both our privileges and our obligations, we need you and I to be in constant contact with the whole of the Bible. In other words, the norming influence of the Word of God must be brought to bear upon our lives continually. This is why we should never forsake the, for, the assembling of ourselves together week after week. And this is what is underscored by the term semper reformanda, namely that we are always in need of having our lives reformed by the norm or the rule of Holy Scripture. But in the midst of these privileges and obligations that are both tremendous and numerous, as they are set forth in Holy Scripture, there are nonetheless certain portions in God's Word where God has given us certain specific statements that bring into sharp focus certain aspects of our privileges and certain directives of our obligations in terms of our duty. For example, the ten words of Moses in Exodus chapter 20. They are a wonderful distillation of what Scripture requires of us as Christian with respect to our duties. There are other places in Holy Scripture as well, particularly the epistles of the New Testament, along with portions of the Gospels, where our Lord affirms and defines our privileges and our duties for us. But along the way, God has been pleased to give us in these Scriptures what we might call some epitome statements. That is, statements in which a whole range of duties are gathered together in one very simple and pithy exhortation. And if we desire to make progress 
as the people of God, then I would say it is incumbent upon us to seek and to master these epitomizing statements with respect to our Christian duty as well as our Christian privileges. And we find this sort of epitomizing statement in the text which I've chosen for the object of our study this evening and next Lord's Day evening. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 11. When he, that is Barnabas, came and had seen the grace of God and was glad and encouraged, and of course the verb there is correctly translated in the English Standard Version, Paracleo, exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with or cleave to the Lord, which is the translation of the old American Standard Version as well as the authorized version. That with purpose of heart they should continue with or cleave to the Lord. And in a very real sense, this particular admonishment sums up in a nutshell a vast spectrum of exhortations given in the Word of God with respect to the duties of the people of God. Now as we attempt to search out and discover the mind of God as revealed in this passage by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want us to consider first of all the context of the exhortation then the essence of the exhortation, and probably most of the applications will come next Lord's Day. And then I want us to look at the conclusion that follows the exhortation, again, next Lord's Day. But first of all then, tonight, for our purposes, in what context do we, you and I, find this particular exhortation given by Barnabas? What context? Well, verses 19 through 23a describe for us the context. What were the circumstances in which Barnabas offers this exhortation for these Christians in Antioch to continue with or cleave to the Lord with purpose of heart? Well, the context is given to us beginning with verse 19. Notice carefully, follow along with me. Now there were those who were scattered after the persecution, that is, after the affliction, Thalipsis, that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia. Now that is to the north of Palestine. Then it mentions the island of Cyprus, which is a little uh, west of Palestine, out in the Mediterranean Sea, and Antioch, And this is Antioch of Syria, not Antioch of Pisidia. Don't confuse the two. This is Antioch of Syria, just north of the land of Palestine. Preaching the word to no one, we're told, but to the Jews only. Now you may recall previously from the book of the Acts that following the martyrdom of Stephen in the 7th chapter, that a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. 
and that God in his providence made use of that particular persecution to scatter the believers. And so we read that those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word according to Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. That is the gospel then began to spread out from Jerusalem. And thus again in Acts, we find that what men intended for evil, God used for the good of the spread of the gospel. Well, some of these scattered believers now had made their way as far as Cyprus, some up to Phoenicia, and some all the way up to Antioch of Syria, and were informed further that they were preaching the word to no one but to the Jews only. They would no doubt go into a synagogue of a particular locality and proclaim the gospel to the Jews who were gathered there. And Luke is careful to underscore for us in verse 20 that they came preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching the Lord Jesus and engaging in that activity. In other words... They did not come preaching some ritualism or mere formalism or any kind of political activism or any do-it-yourself or help-yourself-ism, nor did they come proposing some notion of decisionism or any kind of religious subjectivism. No, none of those isms were present in the preaching of the gospel at Antioch. They were humble believers, originally humble believers. And perhaps there were among these believers some proven teachers and exhorters and evangelists. But the scripture describes their activity at Antioch in these terms, preaching the Lord Jesus. In other words, they were simply declaring to the people there, the Greeks there, those great objective truths which cluster around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, in all the beauty and glory of His person and in all the perfection and sufficiency of His work on behalf of sinners. They proclaimed the Jesus, not of human imagination, but the Lord Jesus as He is set forth in the prophetic fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. In other words, they were proclaiming that the only hope for these Gentile sinners at Antioch was bound up in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the exhortation which we're going to look at in verse 23 is connected to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is the Lord to whom a great number of them turned. Verse 21. And as an aside, I think it's important for you and I to bear in mind that whether it is political activism in the name of Christ or ritualism which draws to itself the language of Christ or formalism that seeks uh, to link itself to to Christ, none of that is the gospel. 
The gospel is the declaration of those great truths which gather around this unique person who is both God and man. And the finished work which is accomplished on behalf of sinners by his perfect sinless life, by his bloodletting, sin-bearing, life-giving death, by his mighty resurrection from the dead, as well as his present ministry at the right hand of God the Father as the only mediator between God and men. But then the context in which this exhortation is given is described for us not only in terms of the introduction of the gospel at Antioch, But he notes for us, you'll notice, the fruit which ensued from the preaching of the gospel. Luke is very careful to underscore the reason for the fruitfulness of the gospel at Antioch. Notice verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And this particular language is drawn directly from the Old Testament scriptures, and it speaks of the direct intervention and visitation of God, either in judgment or in mercy and in grace. If you want to jot a few passages down and look at these later for study, if you want to see the hand of the Lord connected with judgment, look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 15, Judges chapter 2 and verse 15, 1 Samuel chapter um, 5, verses 6 and 9. Or in mercy, you might want to look at the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 4 and verse 24, uh, Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 6, as well as Psalm, the 118th Psalm, verses 5 through 6. So when Luke informs us, that the hand of the Lord was with them, he is using that figure of speech which we call today a Hebraism to underscore the reality. Not only was God present there as he is everywhere present, and not only in a special way in which he is always present in the proclamation of the gospel, but that God was attending the proclamation of that word in terms of extraordinary, efficacious manifestation of his saving power. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And so Luke is careful to draw attention to the reason for the success that the gospel enjoyed at Antioch, even before he defines for us what the nature of that success was. And the reason for the success that the gospel found in Antioch is not to be attributed to the cleverness or to the persuasive skill of the preachers. No, its fruitfulness is to be credited to God. It's not to be credited to any native inclination on the part of the people at Antioch. The reason for the success which the gospel enjoyed in Antioch on this occasion is to be found in the hand of the Lord. But then notice further 
concerning the context. Not only does Luke set before us the reason why the gospel was so fruitful on this occasion, but Luke also calls attention to the evidence of that fruitfulness. Notice, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 21, and because faith and repentance are inseparable in the mosaic of a saving response to the gospel, they're often used interchangeably. Sometimes repentance is mentioned before faith. Sometimes faith is mentioned before repentance, but the two of them are utterly inseparable. Nonetheless, both faith and repentance on the part of these Antiochians is declared by Luke in the narrative. I remember that Charles Haddon Spurgeon describes, um, he's always said that the handmaiden of faith was repentance. That wherever you see true faith, true faith was always accompanied by repentance. And he would always say as well, he would say that repentance was the tear in the eye of saving faith. So the two of those are inseparable. But notice as well, describing for us the fruitfulness of the gospel, having attributed the reason for the fruitfulness to the hand of the Lord, God's direct intervention and visitation in mercy and in grace, the evidence for the fruitful of for the fruitfulness of the gospel is underscored as well. A great number believed and turned to the Lord in faith and repentance. Now these conversions were not some shallow affiliation with a bunch of religious notions, nor was it attachment to these preachers uh, with respect to so many personality cults that we see in our own day. No, the folk at Antioch to whom Jesus was preached had direct dealings with the Lord themselves. They turned to the Lord. Now then, while describing for us the success that the gospel enjoyed at Antioch, Luke informs us that the news of the advance of the gospel there spread all the way down to the mother church At Jerusalem. Look at it, verse 22. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And Jerusalem, being the mother church where the apostles resided, you'll remember according to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, that when the believers were scattered, the apostles remained. In Jerusalem, and it was only it was only proper that the news of the advance the advance of the gospel at Antioch should reach the ears of the mother church in Jerusalem, the very center of the the evangelistic endeavors of the apostolic church, and then Antioch itself becomes the base for the spread of the gospel to the Gentile world. So then as part of the context in which the gospel comes to Antioch, Luke indicates for us not only the fact 
of the gospel coming to Antioch, the fruit that the gospel enjoyed in that place, but also the activity of the church back in Jerusalem in response to this news. Notice the latter part of verse 22. And they sent, that is the church at Jerusalem, they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now you'll notice that the church in Jerusalem, they don't just send anybody. (laughs) They don't just send anybody. But they lay their hands upon a proven man. This man who was mentioned earlier in the book of Acts, who is known for his peculiar ministry, his distinct ministry of consolation and exhortation. Acts chapter 4 verse 36. And they send him to Antioch probably for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was to discern and therefore confirmed the veracity of the news that had come to them that they had heard concerning the advance of the gospel in Antioch. Had a great multitude of the Gentiles indeed turned to the Lord? If so, then this should be an occasion of great rejoicing and praise to God for His grace of the gospel. For God had recently taught the church at Jerusalem very clearly by means of the conversion of the household of Cornelius and the subsequent report of Peter and company that they had brought as recorded in the first half of Acts chapter 11 that God was indeed a God whose heart was bigger than the nation of Israel. And they learned that God intended now to incorporate Gentiles into the church as well on equal footing, full-blown citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so the church at Jerusalem sends Barnabas to Antioch. And it is in this context that Barnabas comes to that place. And he sees what God has done in Antioch. And when he sees the grace of God exhibited there, he gives this exhortation, the essence of which we find in verse 23. So having examined the context of the exhortation, let's examine now the essence of the exhortation itself. And as we consider the essence of, of Barnabas' exhortation, let us consider first of all the duty prescribed by Barnabas. Notice the text of verse 23. And I'm reading now somewhat from uh, the New King James Version, but also from some of my own translation. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged. And of course, that word encouraged is rightly translated in the e. Uh, the English Standard Version as exhorted. It is the verb parakleo. He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with or cleave to the Lord. So then the duty which Barnabas enjoins 
to these believers at Antioch is the duty of continuing with or cleaving to, as we find this verb prosmeno, uh, prosmeno translated in the American Standard Version as well as in the Old Authorized Version. But this verb that's translated continue with or cleave to, it means to remain with or to continue with a certain person. It's the same word used by our Lord in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 32, as well as Mark chapter 8 and verse 2. When speaking of the multitude who were hungry, Jesus said, they have now continued with me three days. That is, they have remained in close proximity to me, have been sitting before me to receive my words. It's also the word that's used by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, where he wrote to Timothy, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Continue in Ephesus. So I think these examples are sufficient to convey to us the sense of this word. The duty which Barnabas prescribes for believers is the duty of continually remaining in attachment to or communion with the Lord. And he uses a form of this verb which emphasizes the continuous nature of this Duty. It is a present active indicative, so we say in the Greek. Continue, remain, continue, remain in close attachment to or communion with the Lord. So this duty, this is the duty that Barnabas gives these new believers at Antioch. And this is what is to be our Christian manifesto as well. Now secondly, with respect to this exhortation, notice the manner in which the duty is to be carried out according to Barnabas. He does not simply exhort them to continue with or remain in attachment to the Lord, but he adds this further modifier to instruct them as to the manner in which they are to obey this exhortation, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. And here, of course, the pivotal words are purpose and heart. And this word purpose, prosthesis, is the same word used in that text which is known or memorized by almost every uh, believer who's been a Christian for any length of time. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8, verse 28. Now this word, when it's employed with respect to God, speaks of God's commitment to a given course of action. It speaks of divine resolve on the part of God. And so when Barnabas would encourage these believers at Antioch with respect to this duty of continual communion with the Lord, of remaining in close attachment to Him, he instructs them that this duty is to be observed with a firm, steadfast, 
holy resolve that can find no better expression than this with purpose of heart. And throughout Scripture, we find references to the heart speak of the seat of one's religious affections, which involves uh, with it the mind, the emotion, one's will. Whatever has my heart has me. What I am in my heart is me. So being very concerned for these new believers at Antioch, Barnabas wanted them to understand that this duty of remaining in communion with and or attachment to the Lord was not something to be observed by them with fits and starts, but that they were to be engaged continually, continually in those disciplines that reinforce the duty of continual attachment to Jesus Christ. And he emphasized by means of this term, purpose of heart, that it required an undivided resolve of the will, the most steadfast commitment of the totality of their whole inward being. In short, he prescribes for these believers an unrivaled attachment to in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, basically, that's what the passage says, and it's taken me this much time, and we're already at the end uh, of our time frame. So let me just close. I want to make some applications, uh, some very pointed applications next Lord's Day evening. But let me make this one application in closing. We as Reformed Christians, unlike what you see perhaps on the TV or in other venues or whatever, we do not emphasize people or personality cults, so to speak. Yes, we're to have a love for all people, but we don't try to put leaders in a certain spotlight. And we're to have an, an esteem for our leaders, for our pastors, yes, But the personality cults that we see in our own day are not what we in the Reformed Church are all about. We're all about pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ, encouraging them to have attachment to Him, to have direct dealings with Him. And I close with this illustration, and uh, I think I've told you some of of you about this when I was in seminary. we had a day on which Dr. R.C. Sproul was scheduled to come and speak in chapel. And there was some, <laughs> there was some excitement on the campus. Like, you know, these students were uh, very desirous to hear Dr. R.C. Sproul in our chapel setting and what have you. And uh, so it was pretty excitement from the very beginning of the day for a great number of people. But... Right before chapel, when everyone was making their way toward chapel, uh, I saw my favorite professor. And uh, he just recently, by the way, passed uh, this past September, Dr. John R. DeWitt, a wonderful, dear man. He was my favorite seminary professor. Uh, They say he taught systematic theology uh, to us, but he didn't teach it. He preached it, and it was wonderful. 
Uh, he was one of the best professors I ever had. Gladys, do you remember Dr. DeWitt? I figured you might. But Dr. DeWitt was wonderful and uh, was one of my favorite professors. But he's not only my favorite, one of my favorite professors, to be sure, he's one of my favorite preachers as well. And so here we are walking towards Grace Chapel, and lo and behold, I see Dr. DeWitt walking across the lawn with his robe folded over his arm. If you ever saw Dr. DeWitt walking across the lawn with his robe folded over one arm, that could mean only one thing. Dr. DeWitt was preaching. (laughs) He wouldn't walk across the, the, the lawn with that gown unless he intended to preach. And I knew then that something had happened And Dr. R.C. Sproul wasn't going to make it to chapel today. (laughs) So we gathered in chapel, and sure enough, Dr. DeWitt walks out in his uh, robe, and he looks at everyone sitting there, and the chapel was full. (laughs) The chapel was full. I mean, there was only elbow room, so to speak. He looks at everyone, and he makes this statement. He says, Those of you who gathered here today to hear Dr. Sproul may leave. And those of you who came here today to worship God may stay. No one budged an inch. And to tell you the truth, I love Dr. R.C. Sproul, but He couldn't hold a candle to the preaching of Dr. John R. DeWitt, in my opinion. And it was a blessing anyway. (laughs) But we in the Reformed Church, we point people to Jesus Christ. We don't point people to men. We lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Barnabas came to those believers in Antioch, the thing he emphasized above all else is that they cleave to the Lord Jesus Christ. May God help us that we may do the same. Let us pray.